My name is Paul Waller and I'm a horror movie addict. During 2020, the workload for my music industry job, it slowed right down. And at the same time, I discovered the movie social networking platform called Letterboxd. So I decided to fill the gaps in my horror film knowledge and I'm still averaging maybe almost two a day. This podcast is a result of that horror compulsion. This is A Year in Horror. And welcome back to you, Horrorless lovers. I love it. I love the fact that you've joined me on this exhilarating experience of excellence. I knew you would. I've got my fingers crossed here that you've had a magnificent month, but now it's time to get fully prepared to get stuck into another big hitter episode with me. This is the 1968 Bonanza right here. So, on the last full episode, we covered the complete Stephen King adaptation filmography. And yeah, of course, I put Stanley Kubrick's The Shining at the number one spot. There were a handful of other great horror films from King's sort of endless pile of movie takes, but none of them even came close to The Shining for me. And of course, nobody was outraged. There were no complaints. I tell thee why. It's because I'm right. And that is the second time I've been right in four months, probably, I think, around that. So, yeah. Nah, goody for me. For this 1968 big hitter, though, I don't think I'm going to get away so luckily. Anyways, feel free to rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, but also feel free not to bother if it seems a bit of a chore. I don't want to be adding to any of your burdens. I won't be losing any sleep. But if you can, fantastic. And before we get delving into that 1968 experience, here's a bit of the old hard sell for you. And guess what? A Year in Horror has a Patreon page, of course. Uh, thank you so much if you've already joined, but if you haven't yet, here is what the hell is happening over there right now, good lord. If you join us at the £4 tier, then you're going to be supporting the show whilst listening to well over 100 episodes of extra content, which includes a ton of deep dives on each movie from that video nasty tier 1 list, and we've just finished it. Holy buggery. Oh, it's done. So... Coming up on Patreon this month, we've got A Year in Bollocks. Uh, we're covering Pink Floyd's The Wall. That's my uh, little show where me and Howard Smith from the band Acid Rain and also the podcast A Year in Bollocks. We join forces. We do a Patreon episode usually once a month. Uh, and it's his turn uh, to pick a film this time around. And as I said, he chose Pink Floyd's The Wall. Another show that we do over there is called Nick's Picks, where I just speak to my friend Nicky Jones, uh, and he chooses any film he bloody well wants to, and we talk about it. He chose The Blob from 88 to talk about. Uh, then at some point in the month, there is an AMA going up. Ask me anything. I've already recorded it, so don't ask me anything now. Well, you can, but you'll have to wait to the next one of those uh, for an answer. Um, <laughs> following that, we've got Cheap Kills. That's another series that I'm doing. I do so many series. Cheap Kills. Uh, Slumber Party Massacre is the one that Graham Bywater has chosen to cover. And then we have March 25th. So we're heading towards the end of the Patreon month there. And it's a new series. It's the Video Nasties again. We're doing the second tier, the ones that were unsuccessfully prosecuted. Uh, we're going to kick it off with a chat with Eric Ellicock and it's Contamination. Recently had a couple of emails come in uh, mentioning Eric. So yeah, Eric, if you're listening, thank you so much for taking part in that contamination there that's coming up so there there we go that's just this month by the way i mean there's so many back episodes up there there's more odds and sods up there than you can fit in your bath jump in that bath have a little wash make yourself clean all ready for yourselves to get dirty again at least four new episodes for you to dive into every month making sure that you get all that bang for your buck and most importantly here is the thing you are supporting me here at A Year in Horror. You're keeping me fired up. You're keeping me hungry to deliver to you some very interesting side quests to this, which is, of course, the main event. It's all over at patreon.com forward slash A Year in Horror. Thank you in advance. 
But right now, you've clicked on this here episode of the podcast that I'm about to deliver to you part one of the rundown for the very best horror films that I found were released in the year of 1968. I found 43 horror and science fiction films. I pressed them really hard into a handy chart as well, all ranked from what I reckon is worst to best. And this was the second year in the 60s where there was a huge turn and modernisation in horror. Not since 1960 had there been such a sea change like this. For 1960, Psycho and Peeping Tom led the way. For 68, I reckon there are four titles, but we're going to get to them. I'm not going to spoil it, but I imagine you already know. But it didn't mean that there was a, a major sea change within the actual cinematic world. Oh no, because what was breaking big at the box office? Well... The huge film that year was a film called Funny Girl with Barbara Streisand in the lead and very close to that, well it was only Kubrick's 2001. Then there was a massive gap and then all the tons of other films. In fact, if we're talking horror, sadly there were only, in the, in the whole top 40 in fact, there was only uh, two titles. Rosemary's Baby uh, stood quite proud at number 8, which isn't bad, isn't bad. And at number 14 there was a serial killer flick called The Boston Strangler. And that's it. In the whole of that top 40, two horror films. So, what was going on in 1968? Over 50 years ago, that's maths. Well, I wasn't born yet, because I'm well young. Hmm. So, this is what was going on musically at the time that I actually dig now. Yeah, I said dig. I'm hip. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. That is what I think is my very favourite Beatles song, and that came out on the White Album, of course. Um, And then this is stuff that I really listen to, so this is the next one. The only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. The only boy who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man. Thanks, Dusty. Appreciate that. But this next one, I feel like I've listened to a lot more recently. Oh, help me in my weakness. I heard the drifter sea. As I carried him from the courtroom and were taking him away. Yeah, that's Bob Dylan, of course. And that was called Drifter's Escape, which was the flip side to the John Wesley Harding single, uh, there we go, so there's that. And also, this one, it just uh, reminds me of my wife. Why do you build me up? Build me up, baby, just to let me down. And mess me around and then worst of all. Never call, baby, when you see you But I love you still, I need you. There we go, as I said, just reminds me of my wife. It's one of her favourite ever songs and it just makes her happy. And if she's happy, I'm happy. And like, I mean, there were literally more than 100 incredible singles that came out that year uh, that I actually still listen to regularly. So do with that information what you will. But what about the actual news? Well, here's four things. At the age of 87, Jeanette Rankin, a congresswoman from Montana, she led some 5,000 women on a march in Washington, D.C. to protest the Vietnam War. Also, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated at the Lorraine Motel. Don't worry, though, the really nice white guy called Richard Nixon, he was elected the United States President of the United States President of the United States. And I would say then that the most important news was that Patricia Arquette, star of Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Stigmata and the TV show Medium, she was born. Over in the UK, the Queen, she ate some toast. She said it was delish. And that was the times. Culturally significant times, yes. But are they 1968 horror movie podcasting times? No. Right. How do things work on the show? Well, for those new to the show, here is a here's a little guide to what a year in horror is all about. This is a podcast where I choose a year at random each month and then I run down my personal favourite films of that year. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy, that's the podcast. With this episode, if I'm covering a film that you don't like or you don't care for or you just want to skip on, then do that. All the time codes are actually in the notes, but do be careful because they act as spoilers for what's coming up next. 
also with each episode i'm joined by some sweet sweet guests and they help me sift my way through the most interesting films of the bunch and for this the 1968 big hitter episode well We've got two new special guests in the shape of a musical guest. Uh, I spoke with the magnificent Los Bichos uh, and also with the actors, writers and directors from the recent movie The Civil Dead. Yeah, I'm talking the comedians Clay Tatum and Whitmer Thomas. Also, four regular friends of the podcast are coming back onto the fold. We've got tattooist Lee Beamish, Ian Martinell from the We Belong Dead podcast, all the way from Canada, we've got Kelly McNeely. She's a writer at iHorror News and she's the co-host of Murders from the Morgue podcast. And finally, but not leastly, we've got a welcome return from John Tantalon, a man embedded in the deepest and darkest of Scottish ghostly goings-on. Type into your Googles, North Edinburgh Nightmares, and you'll see what I mean. Plus, when you make it to the end of this episode, I'm going to be picking out of a bag at random the next year that I'm going to be tackling for next month's edition of the podcast. And you may well be thinking, well, hang on, hold your horses there, sunshine. Those 43 films that you watched, that isn't enough to judge a whole year in horror. But I actually did have 46 lined up. Couldn't source three of them, though. Uh, which was a bit annoying. Um, but then how good is the Spanish movie The Scapula? How's that going to be? Is that going to be good? Also, I miss the Spanish Even the Wind is Afraid. Um, I don't know how good that was going to be either. And also regarding Shogun's Joy of Torture. Well, this one was actually pretty easy to find. But I didn't want to buy it. And I didn't want to have to pay for the privilege of streaming it because I really disliked Inferno of Torture. And that was made uh, the year after this one by the same director. So I just gave it a miss. Let me know, of course, if you think I'm making a big misstep there. But I don't think I am. Here's the most important thing, though. I'm simply a fan. I'm an enthusiast. I'm not a scholar of horror. I'm a dabbler in the darkness. And for the most part, I don't actually watch these things academically. It's just a deep love. It's just something that I do, just like you. I get excited about the stuff all the time. If it's a childish pursuit, then I don't want to grow up. Just remember, this is all my opinions and it's only a list show. So if I miss something out that you love, let me know. I really do want to discover new movies. And also, if you pick up a great tip from this list, well, let me know that you have. It's always a pleasure to hear from you and I'm always ready to say hi back. So you can follow me at Waller Not Weller on Letterboxd and Instagram or you can hit me up at NotWallerPod on Twitter um email that's what i prefer a year in horror at gmail.com if you want to have a chat come and have a chat if not don't worry it's all right if you enjoy this then please leave a five star review or if you do really like it then show your support on patreon either way it's fantastic i just want to spread the word with this thing without having to go down that absolutely nightmare of an advertising route we don't want to do that i'm sure that you already know about pills that make your willy go hard uh, you don't need me advertising it uh, so yeah are you ready hold on to your plate it's 1968 So let us begin as we would usually do on A Year in Horror and kick off with the very worst of the worst of the worst. It's the worst. Because you know you want it. Because I want it. We all want it. The top 10 worst horror movies from 1968. The worst being the number one pick. So uh, yeah, we're not going to start there. Obviously, we do a top 10. Let's go. So we begin with Rape of the Vampire. Ah!
Now this one is split into two parts, of which the shorter one has all the lush, odd, fantastical, vampiric style that I am very used to now with Gene Rollin. But the second part was a right struggle to get through. In it, some of the vampires await the rival of their leader. At least I think that's what's going on. Uh, the indicator Blu-ray set that I've bought is bound to have the answer, but it's filling me with a sort of dread uh, that I used to get when I had to go to school and I didn't want to go. The very thought of sitting through a repeat session of this stinker of a second segment... I'm not down for it. I've seen The Shiver of the Vampire, which came out three years after this, and that one hangs together in a far superior fashion. Here, I could just tell that this was a filmmaker finding their way. It's interesting, but it's deeply flawed. Uh, that is Rape of the Vampire. But at nine, it is the strange world of Coffin Joe, which I saw thanks to YouTube. Uh, it's rather patchy. I think it's a Brazilian anthology movie with very little actually to do with Coffin Joe. But I have to admit, it is that first installment with the old man and his four daughters that are making dolls. That's the reason why it's actually a lot higher than the rest of it would have made it. That's really tasty, that bit. There's a fair bit of sex and gore included, but not enough to get me jazzed up at all. My advice is just give this one a miss. That uh, first segment is the only merit this thing has. In at eight, another stinker in the shape of Wild in the Country. But maybe sometimes, you know, you just got to be in the correct mood for a pretentious Italian art house giallo from 1968 starring Vanessa Redgrave. I thought she would have pushed me into falling for it, but... Alas, 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 it did not hit me in any profound way at all, like it's done with so many of you that have come across this thing. Not for me, wild in the country. Worse than that though, yeah, worse, it's the ghastly ones, which was a video nasty that I've covered over on Patreon with Lono. It is shockingly amateur in its construction, but it will somehow still be a glorious watch for you. Trust me, don't listen to Lono, what's he know? Loads of insane angles, ridiculous costumes, one hell of a crappy ride. It's absolute madness. I would say don't watch it, but if you're into that sort of thing, definitely watch it. At number six, it's Death Laid an Egg. Another YouTube find this one, and the thing is, I absolutely 100% didn't understand just anything that was going on for the majority of this Jallo's running time at all. And it's not even a Jallo, or is it? I don't know. I mean, I truly love the demented score. Uh, that was awesome. Uh, but every time something clicked, like three new ridiculous plot points frazzled my brain. Uh, the setting of a chicken farm as well in this one. It's bonkers. When I listen back to this, I think, God, I need to watch that again. Hitting the top five, though, for the worst horror that 1968 had to offer. Well, it's only Living Skeleton, a Japanese twin doppelganger thing. It's a revenge flick which really, really drags. And maybe it's the language barrier. I don't know. But the editing also was a little confusing. Uh, knocked me out of the world building several times at editing. So I'm going to say that it was the editing's fault. Yep, Living Skeleton. And at number four, it's They Saved Hitler's Brain. No. No, really, that's what this is. The synopsis reads, At the end of World War II, Nazi officials spirited the living head of Adolf Hitler out of Germany to a hiding place in the South American country of Mandoros. Clearly, it's meant to be Mandoros. This is the problem when I'm reading off a, off a synopsis. I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, they're doing this in order to revive the Third Reich at a later date. By the 1960s, the time has come. So a top scientist is kidnapped in order to help Hitler stay alive. This film is a re-edit. <laughs> so it's not even the original film. Oh no, it's a re-edit of The Mad Men of Mandorus. There we go. It was released in 1963, The Mad Men of Mandorus. Uh, I don't think I'm going to search it out. Uh, avoid this. They saved Hitler's brain. But what of number three? That's what I hear you asking. And I don't blame you. Let's get off Hitler. Uh, Ghosts of Hanley House, which is super slow, with terrible choices being made by the creative team at every step. But there is this real pre-punk, punk rock attitude at work here. A real DIY, if you're not going to help me, I'm just going to do it myself attitude. And they've done it to create and craft this horror film. It wins a point at least because of that. The score is also really minimal. It's odd. It's strange. Ghosts of Hanley House. Avoid. Then, just missing out on the title of the worst film that I saw this month. It's called Toby Dammit. 
I'm not playing you a trailer for that because I don't want to. Uh, it's more YouTube stupidness. Now, this like late 60s, early 70s Fellini art house nonsense doesn't do it for me at all. You know that I like a narrative journey to follow, and this one just seems to be twice removed from normal art house. It's beyond madness. And also an insane final 10 minutes of a fella losing his marbles and... All I'm going to say, it's boring as old boots, it's hipster bullshit. Come back to me in 10 years and I'll give it another go and we'll see. But Toby, damn it, not for me. So what could be worse than that, hey? What was the pits for 1968 horror? Well, it was called Succubus. <laughs> creature of the imagination, seeking exotic experiences beyond the imagination. A disciple who mirrors my own image, the essence of evil, a devil on earth. Now, apparently you can find this Jess Franco thing on YouTube. It's a fever dream of bizarrely exquisite looking people and places. I get that. It's mildly erotic and there's just enough horror to sort of have it counting as one. But it lacks so much punch. Anything like a coherent narrative, it lacks that too. There is so much soft focus nonsense here. It took me three different times, three different approaches to finish it. Now, I know that people have rated this like five out of five. There's lots of high scores out there, but it definitely doesn't appeal to me in any way. It was my least favorite thing I saw this month. So, yeah, it is honestly the worst that 1968 threw at me. What a time to be alive. Now, with my number 10 pick here, I would have to say, if you're not a particular fan of Japanese cinema, particularly classic Japanese cinema, well then this is probably your easiest in. Boil it down, then we are actually in firm rape revenge territory with a supernatural angle. I'd still say there should definitely be trigger warnings with this one, because the first act is pretty bleak and it did elicit a very strong draw for me. Maybe because it was down to that cinematography and the blocking at points. Uh, it felt like I was looking at like this piece of art hanging on a wall. It is flashy stuff for such a rough subject. But yeah, trigger warnings just should be put out there. My number 10 pick is Kuroniko. Alright, so the letterbox synopsis is as follows. In the Sengoku period, a woman and her daughter are raped and murdered by soldiers during a time of civil war. After a series of samurai returning from the war through the area are found mysteriously dead with their throats torn out, the governor calls in a wild and fierce young hero to quell what is evidently an Onryo ghost. He encounters two beautiful women in an eerie, beautiful scene. And after spiritual purification, he meets the demon in a thrilling fight. Sorry about all my pronunciations there. So yeah, after watching this one, I straight away looked up just who the hell is that cinematographer as I wanted to find any other work that he'd been involved with. And here I am once again butchering another Japanese name, but 
Kiyomi Kuroda. That person is also the cinematographer in my favourite ever Japanese movie, 1964's Onibaba. And holy shit, if I hadn't just checked that, then I wouldn't have known uh, this. But the other horror film that he was the cinematographer for, well, it was one I've never heard of called Kanawa, a.k.a. The Iron Crown. And that was in 1972. Now, they all share the same director as well. So, so far, like, yes, please, colour me intrigued. I'm definitely in on this. It's on me list. Well, the score for this one, Hikaru Hiyashi, that's the name that I'm going to say right now. They love to employ these sharp strings whenever they're needed, but I also love that metallic, drippy sound and the traditional Japanese drum sounds that are in this thing. I've only ever heard it whilst the film was on, but I definitely found the more spacious parts really affecting. In fact, the more it delved into the minimal, the better for me. It was a very cool score. Uh, Where can you find this film to watch, though? Perhaps I've sold it to you here. Well, in the UK, it's not available to stream anywhere that I could find, but in the USA, I found it on the Criterion channel. Although, in the UK, Eureka Video, they have it as a pretty reasonable-priced Blu-ray, and that's still available. Again, I'm butchering all these Japanese names and I'm really sorry. So if we're talking podcasts, and of course we are now, I would say my choice podcast here uh, is a very new podcast to me. It's called the Keiju Transmission Podcast and they covered Coronico in October 2023. It's a 90-minute examination and yeah, I mean, what else do you want? Coronico, aka Black Cat, is my number 10 pick for 1968. Paul, he's getting dressed. He can't find a t-shirt. Paul, what you gonna wear? Will it be a large t-shirt? Mr. Puggles, what do you think, Mr. Puggles? (laughs) I saw this one thanks to YouTube. And crikey, so much incest. You think that your family's fucked up? Think again. Somehow, this is crafted by the hands of Andy Milligan, the director that brought us the nigh-on impossible to watch, the ghastly ones that I saw for a year in horrors video nasty segment uh, on Patreon with Lono it was, I think. Uh, Let me just double check. Lono, there we go. Yeah, it was Lono. Um, It's currently sitting ugly also in this chart at the worst of the worst section. This one is a rather grotty, incestuous inheritance sort of horror. Uh, The mother, played by Maggie Rogers, is a lot, but she does possess the most god-awful, screamy voice that I can recall hearing, maybe ever. It's so much more together than I thought it would be, though, uh, and it's all the darker for it. This is Seeds. Alan and Rosalie Bazzini present a film so unbelievably real, proving that the most savage animal on earth is man. Seeds. The borderline so narrow between human desires and animal acts mark these people for destruction. Sown in hatred, sown in lust, blossom into deeds so horrifying. Self-inflicted pain filled with the true pleasures of torture marked their every moment. Seeds. So here's the letterbox synopsis for Seeds. An angry alcoholic matriarch tyrannises her spoiled grown-up children during an unwanted family get-together where someone begins killing them one by one. So, director Andy Milligan. 
He was an American playwright, a screenwriter, an actor and a filmmaker whose work includes 27 films made between 65 and 88, 18 of which are horror movies, but here I'm just going to highlight eight of his most popular titles. I don't see myself ever going to those really unpopular ones. According to Letterboxd, sometimes only 12 people have actually seen it. In 1968, both the ghastly ones, which I thought was terrible, and Seeds, which I thought was ace, both came out. And this is where we get to the interesting stuff. In 1970, Guru, the Mad Monk, that came out. That one is set in the 15th century and contains vampires. Also, in 1970, The Body Beneath, this one contains vampires again, but they're moving in together in a large family estate. A pile, if you will. Then... In 1970 again, The Torture Dungeon is next, and that has a bloodthirsty psychopath duke killing off all the other heirs to the throne. Uh, and then, let's go for 1970 again, we've got Bloodthirsty Butchers, which is Milligan's take on Sweeney Todd. Then, a few years later, 1973 now, Blood is the film title. Uh, of course it is. It's where a damaged family of psychos move into a new house together. We've heard it before already in just this discussion, but let's move on. And then in 1974, the rather exquisitely titled The Rats Are Coming, The Werewolves Are Here. Uh, it's bound to be good, this one. It's bound to be good. This is about a family of werewolves, of course, and one of them says, no, no more werewolfing. Now, in 1991, Milligan died, leaving us with this extensive and very confusing batch of films to catch up on. He was 62 years of age at the time of his death. So what's left to say except Andy Milligan, thank you for your service. And at this point, I normally play some of the music, but I can't do that because according to IMDb, in 1995, something weird video located a soundtrack for this film, which up to that time in space was considered lost. Now, I don't know anything about that because I couldn't find any evidence of it online at all, which is a sad thing because this sounds to me like one of those composite scores where music's taken from different films, different TV programs, whatever it would be, and then spliced together to soundtrack his film. I would have loved to known a little bit more about it, but I guess if it's been picked up once before, I imagine it will be picked up again and then I can find out. Maybe, but maybe not. I'll report back to you. If you want to watch this film though, where are you going to find it? Well, I found it on YouTube and that's the only place I could find it as well. And also with the podcasts, it's really light on the ground this one, but I did find one and it was really good. So it was Sleazoid's podcast and they paired it with a film called Blonde Death from 1984, which I've also yet to see. And that first aired on their July 2021 episode. And that's it. That is Seeds. Cleaver, cleaver, chop, chop. First the mum and then the pop. Then we'll get the pretty girl. We'll get her right between the curl. At number eight, it's Twisted Nerve. Now this is a really skillfully crafted, demented and thrilling horror that gifted Tarantino that killer Kill Bill whistle motif. Unfortunately, so many of the story beats here, including the actual bloody premise, are so dated and out of sync with the modern times that it's a difficult tale to relate to. If you can hear some weird breathing, it's Mr. Puggles. Finished? No, he's not finished. So, yeah, that's what's going on. He's on my lap. He's... he's <laughs> I know, I know. Very sad story and a true story, this one, is that he fell into a, a ditch that I was digging and he's hurt his leg, so I'm giving him cuddles. Many apologies. Anyway, back to Twisted Nerve. What I do love, even at the time of release, the producers thought that this film might be seen as so offensive that they actually popped a warning onto the front of the movie. And watching it today, it is so politically incorrect that it goes from cringy in places to almost hilarious in its treatment of the mentally ill. And yet, there is a rough and ready splash of Hitchcock and De Palma within its bones. But the skin of this thing, it just hangs differently. A grittiness and a down-to-earth realness that, at the film's core, I think it gives it a pass for all of its shortcomings. 
I'm going to say that. I'm giving it a pass. Obviously, I popped it in my top 10 because it's freaking brilliant. It's Twisted Nerve. Don't scream. Hello, Georgie. Sir, surprised you, didn't I? I'd like to know what he does up there, day after day with a door locked. Face it, Enid, he's not normal. He should have seen that psychiatrist when I wanted him to. No, Georgie. Why not? Tell me, why not? I can't, I tell you, I can't. Got to be out here. Got you! <laughs> So here's your letterbox synopsis. Martin Durnley is a young man with an infantilizing mother, a resentful stepfather and an institutionalized brother with Down syndrome. To cope, he retreats into an alternate child personality that he calls Georgie. And after being caught during a theft attempt at a department store, he befriends a female customer who is quite sympathetic to him, but his friendship soon turns into an obsession. So... MVP time, and although he is not top of the cast list on Twisted Nerve, Huel Bennett is the lead. Right? He is. He's the star of this thing, and whilst it may not be the most sensitive portrayal of someone with a developmental disability, he is actually portraying someone that is a dick and pretending to have that affliction in order to get what he wants. Uh, there is no denying how charismatic that he actually is in this. So, of course, as soon as this one ended, I went onto Google, looked up to see exactly what else he'd been in and if any of those things fall into the horror bracket. And I found just one of them. And I'm so going to find it because it sounds ace. It's called Murder Elite. And this is the synopsis of Murder Elite. An English woman, Ali McGore, returns to her homeland after losing her fortune in America. She is stalked by a serial killer. So... Already, it sounds right up my street. So I hope that he is actually playing a serial killer. On Letterboxd, it's got less than 40 people that have actually marked it as seen. So I did a check. It's not on YouTube. So that means the hunt is on. Murder Elite, you will be mine. Smokes, this is the one. I love this soundtrack. Of course, as I've already said, this is where Tarantino found that Kill Bill whistling theme from. And this score, which you can find in full on YouTube, just has so many variations of that theme. And also, like this bunch of stunningly recorded jazzy numbers accompanying that theme to boot, that I think I love it. I cannot tell you how many times I've listened to this one in full, but it is easily too many. In fact, I think I need to calm down a bit because I've got to watch more films for this podcast. So, yeah, this soundtrack is proper addictive. I know it would be when I was actually watching the film for the first time. It is simply just an incredible score. And, yeah, who composed it? Well, of course, it was Bernard Herrmann. And is it as good as Psycho? Is it as good as Vertigo, Taxi Driver, Citizen Kane, Cape Fear? Is it as good as Sisters? Well, that's a conversation for a different episode. The fact that he wrote them all, though, that's absolutely nuts. So where can you find this film to watch? Well, it isn't currently available to stream that I can find anywhere, but there are reasonably priced uh, DVDs and also Blu-rays out there. As for podcasts, Video Store Nightmares, they covered this one in November of 2022, and I can't find any other evidence of any other pod covering it. So I think that one is well worth a stab, though. Just watch the movie first. That's my advice, because spoilers ahead. So what else can I say is, nah, not going to say anything else. Just watch it. It's Twisted Nerve. Here we go. Only one set of also runs this month. The thing is, I did watch one non-genre film by mistake for this episode. Forgive me, it was a Herschel Gordon Lewis film, so I thought I was quids in, but I was not. It's called She Devils on Wheels, and you know, there is a lot to like about that one, but it's one of those cool things is definitely not the biker gang's uniform, those bright colours and pastels. It looks as rebellious and aesthetically pleasing as the Teletubbies. Apart from that, I'm completely game. I'm like fully in on it, definitely, 100%. 
It isn't horror. It isn't science fiction. It isn't fantasy. Those bikers are the real deal. So let's move on back to the horror also ran, shall we? That's where we're going. That's what this is. It's the also rans, 1968. Let's begin at what is my number 22 spot. And I've chosen the magnificently disappointing secret ceremony, which is a snail paste false identity caper but it th here is the thing it stars mia farrow and elizabeth taylor which is just the cast right yet it shouldn't be as confusing or indeed as messy as it is considering who's in this thing so it's a mess one step preferable to that one was goke body snatcher from hell i imagine it's definitely not pronounced goke but that's how I'm doing it. Uh, a sort of Japanese vampire flick, this one. The survivors of a plane crash in a remote area are attacked by a blob-like alien creature that turns the victims into bloodthirsty vampires. Does that sound good to you? It does, doesn't it? Yeah, but approach it with caution. That's what I'm saying. And here's one that will confuse the art house uh, lovers out there. Hour of the Wolf followed that one this is the ingmar bergman's art house horror which is just a complete chore well it was for me to finish anyway it's not my style at all and yet i love the seventh seal i especially enjoyed the virgin spring so it's not completely out of my wheelhouse this one though it just left me cold took me two days to finish it but i did because i'm, I'm well hard i can do this sort of thing uh, i watched thanksgiving actually on the same day as i finished it and I gave Thanksgiving twice the score of this one. So that makes it official now that Eli Roth is twice the director of Bergman. You heard it here first and you probably have only ever heard that here. Still better than that. But still struggling to breathe with a 4 out of 10 score from myself. It's the Blood Beast Terror. And this is a film where Peter Cushing is crushing all the competition once again. This time he battles a giant mothy bird creature thing. Or does he? The whole of the thing where it's a play within a film, it drags. That whole thing just sort of drags it out to within an inch of its life. Ruin the film for me. So definitely better than that. And still criminally low to most of you, I reckon, is Jonathan Miller's whistle and i'll come to you and sing that ghosts uh, the spirits of the dead uh, the, the survival of the human personality ah ah survival of the human personality mm. well uh, <coughs> that's a different question again really and uh, it has the Grammatical appearance. A real question, but I wonder. Does it really does it really mean anything either? So that was a trailer for Whistle and I'll come to you. So here's the synopsis for this one. A university professor is confident that everything which occurs in life has a rational explanation. He finds his beliefs severely challenged when during a vacation to a remote coastal village in Norfolk. It's Norfolk again. I'll tell you, there's something about Norfolk. He blows through an ancient whistle discovered on a beach, awakening horrors beyond human understanding. Now, this one is, of course, adapted from that M.R. James story and is known as somewhat as a classic. Of course it is, but sadly, it didn't bomb with me at all. I much preferred that 2010 stab at it, and that one starred John Hurt. Much preferred that. Sad times. So now you're thinking, right, if you've got Whistle and I Come To You So Low, what can you prefer? Well, let me tell you. It's Yokai Monsters, 100 Monsters. There's a couple of these Yokai Monster films here, uh, but this is my lower of the two. Uh, let's face it, 100 Monsters is a bit of an exaggeration. It's more like 26 Monsters. I know that because I counted. This is sort of more Japanese nonsense, which unfortunately doesn't live up to the claim of the title, as I've said. Plus, the whole of the practical effects ending bonanza, which I was so looking forward to, is ruined because it's done in slow-mo and it just feels like such a build-up to such a letdown. My next pick was The Snow Woman. Here's the thing with this. The anthology short that tells this same tale, which was made some four years earlier, called Quaidan, it was far, far punchier, more succinct, but I would say if you've seen neither that nor this, search that one out. That would be my advice. That's the snow woman. 
At 15, I've placed another Japanese monster movie. This one is called Destroy All Monsters. And in this, it's quite the shame that there are too many assumptions made by the human characters which turn out to be correct so the film can just move along. Uh, it gets really annoying really fast. Scuppers my view in pleasure. I do love all the monsters in this. Of course I do, especially the dinosaur guy and the slug boy. They do look like complete crap. But it is awesome crap and I'm totally game for it. And even better than that one is Spirits of the Dead. And well, this is an anthology. I would say it's an interesting curio, which sort of peaks really early for me with the Jane Fonda moment where she's being a proper bitch until she falls in love with a reincarnated horse human thing. Yeah, you heard me. I also didn't mind Bridget Bardot in this getting whipped uh, after losing at cards. She smokes fat cigars. I'm not rushing out to watch it again, that's for sure, but I'm glad, glad I got there. At 13, it was Corruption. Corruption is not a woman's picture. Run. 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 You can't escape corruption. Where will the bodies turn up next? Under a car seat? In a valise? Or in a deep freeze? Corruption is not a woman's picture. Therefore, no woman will be admitted alone to see this super shock film. Suggested for mature audiences. Yeah, that's the trailer for Corruption. The ending of this thing is a home invasion and it's a collection of scenes of sort of farcical nonsense and in my opinion, it totally ruins the film. I know things do have to escalate, but truly, what a misstep for this film. Up until that moment, I really enjoyed the over-the-top serial killer angle uh, with vanity and lust being primary forces in this macabre tale, but it simply got so silly that all Peter Cushion's incredible work as the diabolical doctor, it came undone. I'm a little gutted, truth be known. Bloody corruption indeed. Better than that, though, is my number 12 pick called Curse of the Crimson Altar. In this film, a fantastic cast feature in an okay satanic cult plot, which is ham-fistedly collated into a full-length film by including the same use of patter, of pointless dialogue all through it, rubbish relationships, overlong seams that if they trimmed uh, into the final edit, could have made this one a real contender. That was Curse of the Crimson Altar. And then, oh, I've got to speak more contenders here. Just missing out on the top 10 placement. It's my second of these films for 68. It's another yokai monster film. It's called Spook Warfare, this one. Uh, I caught all the yokai monster films on Shudder, actually, just so you know. This one is pretty much a made-for-kids monster movie, but I can't see many kids actually enjoying it. But that costume department is delightfully bonkers in that creature design work. And the rudimentary everything else is sort of adequate. That's fine. For this one, I would say think of Nightbreed. Cross it with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And both of them will be nowhere near this silly. But that's it. That is my 1968 also rans. All tied up in a horrific bow for you. I think it's time to continue with the top 10 now. At number seven in the greatest horror films of 1968. Well, it's Dracula has risen from the grave. Or, if you were being just a little bit cruel, Day for Night has risen from the grave. I mean, Jesus Christ, Day for Night in this film. It's really frustrating that the big D always dies so easily as well. I'm getting a bit fed up with that. And it would seem that as these sequels go on, they get a bit dumber and a bit dumberer and a bit dumber. But treating us like morons, that's not right. A simple shot of setup and payoff would really do the trick. But elsewhere, though, and I kid you not, this thing is as wonderful as a Hammer film as there ever was. 
it is great stuff probably because it was directed by freddie francis who i covered recently when i spoke about his paranoiac and tales from the crypt movies christopher lee reprising his role as that red-eyed dracula and both barbara ewing and veronica colson back him up in the fiercest of ways and the sets in this thing, as usual, are immaculately dressed and over the top in their gothic majesty. So yeah, if you want that hammer horror comfort watch, well, Dracula has risen from the grave, is right up your street, and it's right up my street. Oh, hello. I'm a mother with a problem. I have a son whom many people consider somewhat strange. He's moved into the strangest apartment. He never gets up until midnight. I don't like his friends one bit. And he's always carrying on so with girls. Okay, here's that letterbox synopsis. In the shadow of Castle Dracula, the Prince of Darkness is revived by blood trickling from the head wound of an unconscious priest attempting an exorcism. And once more, fear and terror strikes Transylvania as the undead Prince of Darkness stalks the village of Kinunenberg to ensnare victims and satisfy his evil thirst. And it's not often that I shout out an editor on this podcast, but I did mention in the intro about this one, this film definitely has its faults, but a lot of those edges are sewn together off nicely to hide those bits of chaff, thanks to the editor here, Spencer Reeve. I'm particularly speaking of the resurrection scene here, which could have come off as farcical, if not for a tasty edit, where the focus is on the important stuff like blood and a little bit more blood what could have come across as quite hammy when combined with this score, it almost seems like stuff of legend now. Reeve also edited Quatermass in a Pit and Frankenstein Created Women and The Devil Rides Out before he got to this. And then a year after, he edited that sci-fi western Moon Zero Two. Then in 1971, he did the editing work for Lust of a Vampire and Twins of Evil. And another interesting tidbit here is that he worked on the sound in his early career to a 1964 movie, uh, to be precise. It's the Don Sharp horror Witchcraft, starring Long Chaney Jr., which I didn't even know existed. Never even heard of it before looking the guy up so very much interested and that is definitely on my list and I don't know much about him but a google search did let me know that he died in his 50s or very late 40s in 1973 in High Wycombe in the UK and if you're gonna go then maybe High Wycombe is as good as place as any to actually pass on so Spencer Reeve thank you for your service single time you gothic horror stooge you in 1968 this score accompanied the film and by christly goodness if this isn't a beautifully elegant accompaniment to the visuals well i'll shoot my own foot oddly i'm very fond of the film's quieter passages this time around of which there is a surprising amount here uh, the key word is elegant though the strings sound posh and lush and then you've got this organ juxtaposed with that it sounds ridiculous in places it's so gothy it's a comical haunted house carnival ride uh, it's got that grandeur to it but as i say those strings they overcome everything posh they're very posh it's a fun ride 
So where can you find this one? Well, in the USA and the UK, you've got to pay for the privilege on streaming uh, as it isn't currently free anywhere. Um, like it all. As for podcasts, fancy a two and a half hour podcast with all the trimmings on this here movie? You do? Well, head over to Campbell and Jones Meets the Monsters podcast from June 2023 and you're going to be banging luck. That is Dracula has risen from the grave at number seven. So at number six, I wasn't surprised when I found out it was directed by Richard Fleischer either, uh, the same fella that made that Mia Farrow film in See No Evil a few years later. Uh, there is this elegant sort of flatness of the whole deal of See No Evil. Uh, there's no real pizzazz or flair of the film craft. Still a good film, uh, but there never really needs to be any of that stuff. But where my next pick, The Boston Strangler, differs though... Uh, from that at least, is with the addition of maybe 20 different uses of a split screen uh, within this whole film running time. It's not entirely successful, but there are true moments of realistic spectacle in this thing. It's a damn fine serial killer flick from the 60s, that's for sure. Why did 13 women willingly open their doors to a Boston Strangler? Why has he never been brought to trial? And the most important question of all, why are people who see this film so surprised at the answers? The true story of Albert DeSalvo, the self-confessed Boston Strangler, is based upon the best-selling book by Gerald Frank. It is suggested for mature audiences only. So here's a little bit of the letterbox synopsis. Boston is being terrorised by a series of seemingly random murders of women. Based on the true story, the film follows the investigator's path through several leads before introducing the Strangler as a character. It's almost seen exclusively from the point of view of the investigators, who have very few clues to build a case upon. Now, the score to this one is composed by Richard H. Klein, he of Star Trek, the movie fame, uh, and obviously Howard the Duck, but sadly, I couldn't find a copy of that to listen to either legally or illegally online. So let's just talk about the film's star's contribution to horror. Yeah, let's do it. It's Tony Curtis. Yeah, that guy from Some Like It Hot and the sweet smell of success and spirit. Spartacus. He was known to dabble in a little bit of horror too. He had a very small role in the Patrick O'Neill vehicle called Chamber of Horrors in 1966. Then in 78, a bit of a wait there, but in 78, he was the lead in that definitely culturally inappropriate The Manitow. And the plot synopsis for that one is that a psychic's girlfriend finds out that a lump on her back is a growing reincarnation of a 400-year-old demonic Native American spirit. Oh, I mean, how can that go wrong? <laughs> I can't wait to see it. Um, in 1982, he was directed by the very man who created the bogeyman. Uli Lamel. Some like to call him Lommel. I've not looked into it. It could be either. Uh, he starred in another movie that I haven't seen, though, called Brainwaves. Now, this one looks like a mind transference film, and Curtis plays the Doctor. Then we've got the horror comedy called Midnight from 1989, which you can currently find on Tubi. Uh, it looks like a TV movie to me, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Uh, it's about horror film hostess on TV, a bit like Joe Bob, but this is a person that has boobies. Then there is another one that I'd never heard of, and it was a canon film from 1993. It's called The Mummy Lives, and I like the synopsis of this one. An Egyptian noble sentenced to death for a forbidden affair returns from the grave 3,000 years later and becomes obsessed with the woman who he thinks is the reincarnation of his dead lover. We may have seen that sort of thing before, but my gosh, I can't wait to watch Tony Curtis do it. And I mean, there's got to be some diamonds in all that rough, right? So yeah, I'm game. Don't forget though, he was also married to Janet Lee, horror royalty there for a while. And his spermy sperm and her eggy egg, it collided in a wonderfully squelchy moment that created Jamie Lee Curtis. Just imagine that. Just picture that. Amazing. Now... Tony passed away in 2010 at the age of 85 in Nevada, of all places. Tony Curtis, thank you for your service.
So where can you find this? Well, in the USA and the UK, you can't stream it anywhere, but I did rent it on YouTube of all places. That's where I found it. As for podcasts, I'm just going to head you into the direction of one. Uh, and it's really why this is so short, because I recommend that you really go here. Uh, in February of 2015, the last podcast on the left team, they covered the real events detail in the Boston Strangler. And of course, they mentioned the film. Uh, it's a huge set of episodes, and it's just one of the most fantastic tales of serial killer true crime podcasting out there. So, yeah, that's the last podcast on the left. And that's it. My number six is the Boston Strangler. <laughs>